Let's open our Bibles this evening and go to Deuteronomy chapter 31. This evening, I would like to teach on God's inspired word. God's inspired word. Deuteronomy chapter 31. And I'm going to begin with verse number two. And he said unto them, I am a hundred and twenty years old this day. I can no more go out and come in. Also the Lord hath said unto me, Thou shalt not go over this Jordan. And then I want us to come down to verse number nine. And Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests the sons of Levi, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and unto all the elders of Israel. So we are teaching on God's inspired word. We'll look at a number of verses this evening, but let's sing this prayer together. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true, and with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Deuteronomy being the fifth book of the Old Testament, it's called the second law. And at this point, Moses knows that he's come pretty much to the end of his days. 120 years of age. Wouldn't you love to see that age if you still had your strength and vigor and right mind? This is what this man had. He's already laid his hands, or I should say is preparing to transfer power to Mr. Joshua. But a 120-year-old man is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he has guided them since he was 80. I think all of us would enjoy being around older people if those people were filled with wisdom. I have I've always enjoyed being around my grandparents. I spent a lot of summers with my grandparents. And when I became a preacher as a teenager, I spent the bulk of my time with old preachers because I was interested in the stories, the life that they lived, how they overcame, how they persevered, how they lived holy in a world where there were temptations and distractions on every hand. One of the ways that Moses was able to keep himself was by a strict adherence to the law of God. This man believed God's word. And verse 9 tells us that he wrote the law, so that tells us he was literate. This man was able to read. We know from the book of Acts he was educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians. He could read hieroglyphics, but with this ability, that he had to be able to read and to write, he copied down the law. I wonder what kind of an impression it would make upon you if you had to sit down with a pen or pencil and paper 
and started copying from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Deuteronomy. Not how long it would take, but what kind of impression it would make upon your heart. What verses would stand out to you? To be able to read God's word is a gift that many people in this world don't possess because there are a lot of people who are illiterate. I've known plenty of preachers in the South that never learned to read. I've known plenty of elderly people who even to this day still do not know how to sign their name. They can just make an X when they have to go into some place to do that. But to spend time with someone that has had decades of experience with the Lord, I, I, I would just be fascinated with the stories of what Moses saw. Because this is why the Bible meant so much to him. He was there when they crossed the Red Sea. He saw it. He was there when the manna started to descend. For 40 years, folks, every day, six days a week, this man saw some things. But you've known people also, and I would encourage the younger people to spend time with older people and ask questions. When I lived as a preacher in Jacksonville, North Carolina, I attended a church called Marshall Chapel. And of all the preachers there, I was the baby preacher on staff at that church. I was 19 years of age, and all the old women in the church nicknamed me Baby. That's all they ever called me. Nobody called me Brother Daryl. Nobody called me Elder Sutton. Nobody called me Reverend Daryl. It was the baby. It was so embarrassing. The pastor would get up on a Sunday afternoon when I had to preach, and he said, everybody, we're going to have a great service. The baby is going to preach to us. <laughs> but on my days off, there was this one road called Piney Green, where many of the residents were part of the same extended family. And I would often go and spend time at Mother Ethel's house, she had to have been in her late 80s, early 90s then. And this little lady lived in a little small house in the wintertime, had a potbelly stove. And whenever I would come over there, she would always put on that potbelly stove a little skillet and then a little piece of bear meat, make some gravy and then some rice or something for me. And we'd sit there and then I'd ask her about growing up in America in the 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. I'd ask her about those old preachers and those revival meetings and how preachers would take two churches sometimes. They'd one Sunday in one church, the next Sunday in another church, splitting their time because the churches didn't have so many pastors. But I look back now and all I have is a memory. But do you realize if all you have is a memory, that's still better than having nothing at all? Yeah. It's better to have seen a Bible and read a Bible than to have never seen a Bible and read a Bible at all. Because what you put into you, the Spirit of God uses that as a deposit, and the Spirit of the Lord is able to bring back to your remembrance everything that you need. So important was the law of God that in verse 9, Moses wrote it, gave it to the priest, because the priest's responsibility was to minister the Word of God to the children of Israel, to teach them the knowledge of the Lord. That's what a minister is supposed to do, to teach people to believe God, not to teach people to disbelieve God. 
Moses didn't copy the law to tell people that some of what I've written down are fairy tales and legends and myths. But to demonstrate the power and the presence of God being with the children of Israel. And this is why he is able to put that law down in writing. Now, if you come to Second Timothy, then I can show you that we're to do something similar to what Moses did. And 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And what does it mean to study? It's more than just a casual glance. It's more than just reading a few passages. To study something is to take the time to meditate on it. And when you meditate, that's the same as spiritually digesting the food because you're thinking about it. You're allowing that meditation to not only be on the inside of your head, but to get down into your heart. And if it says study to show yourself approved, then that means that God is pleased with us who take the time to study what his word says. And he's displeased with those who won't take the time to read the word. Do you realize we have a generation today of people who don't read the Bible? They don't read it at home. Some of them don't read it at church. I've gone to churches and preached in churches where I know the whole time people that that are sometimes acting like they're following me on the telephone as I'm teaching. I know they're sending texts and their minds are here, there and everywhere else. But the scripture says study to show yourself approved. If I take the time to read God's word, then I'll be able to demonstrate that I have learned that this Bible has 66 books. It contains the writings of over 40 authors over thousands of years in compiling this. And yet all of them tell the same story because the scarlet thread of redemption is woven from Genesis one straight out of Revelation chapter 22. And if I read it, the scripture says that I'm like a workman. What is a workman? Somebody involved with a particular vocation. If you're a carpenter, you want to be good at carpentry. If you're a farmer, you want to be good at farming. Whatever your individual vocation is, you're a workman or a workwoman. So know what it is that you do, develop the skills and the talents to do it. And the scripture says in verse 15, you won't be ashamed. That means you'll have confidence. Because if you don't know what the Bible teaches and know how to apply it, you can't have confidence. And this is why sometimes at family gatherings, if you ask a cousin or an uncle or somebody to pray, they'll say, oh, no, I I don't want to pray. You pray. Because they're not confident that they know what to say. Sometimes when I go to the Rotary, you know, and uh, go to the little meetings that we have, and then I walk in there. And I don't know what they do when I'm not there, but I know what they do when I am there. Once I get there, then it's time to open it up and, you know, we, you know, go through a few little things and then it's time to pray. And when it's time to pray, I quickly bow my head and do like this. And then it'll be quiet for about 20 or 30 seconds. Then I open my eyes and all of them are looking at me. And they said, no, well, Pastor Daryl, since you're here, we want you to pray because you're a professional prayer. See, professional. You're a pastor. But do you realize that everybody should know how to pray? Everybody should know how to open up the book. And if nothing else, turn to the prayers of Paul. Look at what Peter said. 
Know the Lord's prayer to be able to study, to show yourself approved, a workman that needs not be ashamed. There should never be a time in your life as a Christian where you have to bow your head in embarrassment because someone has asked you to do something as simple as pray. Or pray, lay your hands on someone and pray. Or go visit someone and encourage them. You should have enough God in your life and in your heart that you can pour it out and be a blessing to individual people. And the scripture says rightly dividing the word of truth. So there's a correct way to take the word of God, to pull it apart and study it and put it back together again. When you don't know how to read God's word, confusion comes in. And I think that's why some people will not read the book. Now, again, this book is inspired. This book comes from God. People that had a relationship with God put it down for us. And the Bible says that we are to take the time to read it. So when I'm studying the scripture and comparing it to what I see on television or hear on radio or when I'm going into different churches, then I'm listening to what is being stated in order to learn how to determine if this is right or wrong. See, we ask the question sometimes and people wear the bracelets. What would Jesus do? But I told you that question is irrelevant if you haven't mastered the Gospels to know what did Jesus do? Because if you don't know what he did do, you have no idea what he would do. But if you have an understanding of what his actions were like in the scripture, then you'll be able to look and listen to what people are saying and say, my God wouldn't act like that. He would never conduct himself like that. He would never say that. Jesus never opened up his mouth to say anything to disparage God's word. And when I hear hear a preacher that goes out of his way to teach people not to believe the book, I know he's not speaking for God. The scripture calls this the word of truth. That means there are holy books that are not true. Well, I can't accept the Koran as a revelation of God if I honestly believe Jesus is my savior. I can't accept the Hindu books as a revelation of God if I truly believe Jesus is my savior. I can't follow the Book of Mormon, even though people say Joseph Smith is a prophet, whatever he might have been. He's not a prophet in here, so I'm not going to follow his revelation. If the book says I should rightly divide the word of truth, I should take the time to read the word of truth. If you don't read the word of truth, you'll never learn how to rightly divide it because you can spend so much time reading those teachings that have nothing to do with God to where you end up in confusion. So we see today that we've got everything from witchcraft to animism, Shintoism in the Far East, and all kinds of other isms that people are a part of, and they encourage one another to read those books. But if I want to be a workman for God and be an ambassador for the Lord, and I want to be a co-laborer with the king, then I need to know what the king says in his book. So my approach to God's word is that this is God's word and it's never going to change. It reflects the nature of God. The nature of God is immutable. The scripture says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. If he believed it was God's word in ancient times, he still believes it's God's word today at the right hand of the father. And we should also. If you go to the next chapter of Second Timothy, chapter three, notice verse number 14. 
But continue thou in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you've learned them, that from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. All of you that learned the Bible when you were kids, you should be grateful and praising the Lord that you were raised in a house that taught you sound doctrine and taught you to believe in God, because there are a lot of people weren't raised in houses like that. I was not raised in a house with Christian parents. From a child, you've known the holy scriptures. Notice the adjective, holy scriptures. Here's the ability, able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This book is not going to tell you how to rebuild an engine. This book is not going to tell you how to herd sheep, cattle. This book isn't going to talk to you about how to drive a combine, but it will speak to you about the character you need in order to perform all of those duties. Wise unto salvation. It will lead you into the knowledge of how to lead others to Christ. And it'll help you as you rescue people out of the darkness and rescue people out of the perils of sin. It's able to make you wise. And I can't think of anybody who wouldn't want just a little more wisdom. If, if you could have an opportunity like Solomon had and the Lord came to him in a dream in Gibeon and said, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. If God were to say that to you, what would you ask for? He said, I'd give you anything that you wanted. Would you ask for more love? Would you ask to be able to function in the gifts of the Holy Ghost? Would you want more of the manifestation of the fruits of the Spirit? Would you want a greater revelation of the redemptive work of Jesus? Here's what Solomon said. Solomon said, Lord, I want wisdom. I want an understanding heart to be able to judge your people. And the Lord said, because you asked for that, I'm going to give you not only the the wisdom, but I'm also going to give you wealth. Because with wisdom being the greatest of things you could pray for, if you have wisdom, you can function in all other areas of the Scripture. You could have a great capacity for loving people and still be naive and not have any wisdom. And I've met a lot of people that are very merciful, but people take advantage over all the time. You can, you can have the manifestations of the power of God and tongues and interpretation of tongues and prophecies and gifts of healing, but without wisdom, you still might like the, like the character that you need to operate in the power of God. So if the scriptures are able to make you wise, then why not read them? Why not read a proverb a day or a chapter a day? The scripture here is clear. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. All scripture. Now, for Paul, scripture was Genesis through Malachi. Later on, we know from the writings of Peter that Paul's letters were coming to be accepted as holy scripture and recognized and read in all of the different churches. But notice it says in verse 16, by inspiration of God, God himself is at the foundation of the recorded words that we have in the canon of Scripture. And there's a reason we don't have in our book what the Roman Catholics have in their book. There's a reason we don't have the Apocrypha and all of these other books. Because we don't believe those are inspired by God. The Apocrypha teaches that you should pray for the dead. The Bible never 
teaches that we should do that. But at the same time, it says this book is profitable. That means it is advantageous for you to take the time to read this. And it says for doctrine. What is doctrine? Teaching. You've got to measure what you hear according to what's in the book. If someone says to you, I, I just don't believe we're in a day of miracles, then your response should be, it's not about a day of miracles. We serve a God of miracles. If someone were to say to you, I just don't believe in any kind of divine intervention today of any kind. Once the last apostle died, it was over. Then you can remind them that there were thousands of people that heard Jesus Christ teach all over Israel. And when the last apostle died, there were still hundreds of disciples still alive that heard the same message. They served him, too. And if somebody says that God doesn't divinely intervene today, then my question is, why should we pray? Because if the point of prayer is to ask God to get involved, then you're only asking him because you need him to do for you what you're incapable of doing for yourself. And if he gets involved in any way, that's divine intervention. That makes it supernatural. That makes it miraculous. It may come on the side of sensationalism or spectacular, whatever it is. I don't really care just so long as God gets involved. Yeah. When I need help. I'm saying help. So I'm measuring doctrine according to what the word of God says. And I'm listening to the disciples, because if it's mentioned by Jesus in the Gospels, outlined and practiced in the book of Acts and defined in the epistles, it's for the church today. There's no doubt about it. So it says here for reproof. Now, Paul Tells Timothy sometimes rebuke openly before all. And scripture does reprove us because if we're wrong, we need scripture to tell us that sometimes. And God, the Holy Ghost is able to bring conviction upon your heart that I can't bring because if you don't do something because I ask you not to do it or because I preach against it. But yet in your heart, you want to do it. That Romans chapter eight says already that that the carnal mind is enmity with God and there's death in the very thought of it. So, I mean, you, you might as well just about be doing it since you're already dreaming about it. But the scripture says for reproof and for correction. And something that involves correction means to take something that's in a bad pathway and put it back in a correct posture, moving in the right direction with God. How many times have I had to sit down with people that were living together out of wedlock and explain to them what the Bible says? One time, Tiffany and I counseled a couple. I'll never forget this. They were shacking up. And we were teaching them from the scripture about what the Bible says about marriage. And the, the gentleman uh, said to us, and the lady said to us, no one has ever told us that before. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine living in a world where no one had ever explained to someone how important marriage is <clears throat> and that it's the only valid institution through which two people can come together in God's eyes and find the approval that they need in order to physically be together. But yet, you know, we've got a generation of people today where some parents will even tell people, you should just try it out, live together, see how it'll work out because you two may not be compatible. The scripture says that this book is given for correction. 
Jesus talked to a woman one time at a well that had been married four or five times. And the woman was living with a man that she wasn't married to. And Jesus told her so. He told her so. And he ministered to her and gave her heart to the Lord. I preached a meeting one time where at the end of the message, I could see the conviction of God on a lady as I ministered the word. And at the end, she came down and gave her heart to the Lord. So I said to her, I said, who's that man that's been back there sitting in the pew? This was going on in front of everybody. And it was quiet, just like it is here now. I said, who's the man that's back there sitting next to you? She said, it's my boyfriend. He lives with me. I said, oh, my. I said, we've got a decision to make. So you just gave your heart to the Lord. Then I talked to him in front of everybody in the church. I said, she just gave her heart to the Lord. You've got to make a decision. Do you want to come down and give your heart to the Lord? Because otherwise, if you don't, then when you go back home tonight, you're packing your bags and leaving her house. I said that in front of everybody. He said, what did he do? He stepped out in that aisle and came right on down. And here these two people ended up married. See, so here's the point. The scripture is to be used for correction and it's not to hurt, but it's to profit people. See, but I can think of a whole lot of people that just would have said to him, look, you just live any way that you want. Just come on the church. We're just so glad to have you here. We are glad to have you here, but we do want you, if you claim Christ as your savior, to live in accordance with the book. That's not mean. That's love. See, when a mom and dad says to their their child, you know, I saw you the other day. You were standing over there down on Main Street with with so and so. And I really I'm not really too pleased with you spending a lot of time with them. Now, the kid could say something like like what my brothers and I would say. Oh, mom, dad, why are you so judgmental? Lay off. But you know what my mom and dad would say? It doesn't matter how judgmental you think I am. You're my kid. I brought you in this world. And I'll tell you who you can be with and who you can't be with. And you can do whatever you want when you become an adult. That's what they said. So when it comes to God, then we have to realize light and darkness has no fellowship. The scripture says, don't be unequally yoked. Go out of your way to allow scripture to correct you when you're moving in the wrong direction. And that's humility. I grew up in a holiness church where. I'm telling you, they made the boys sit on one side of the church and the girls on the other. And, and, and in that church, unlike a whole lot of other churches where my friends attended, there were no kids born out of wedlock in that church. I can assure you. And, and, and they, 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 they kept us in that altar and we were on our knees and they were praying for us. But they had this belief that sanctification was a secondary blessing. So you had to come to the altar and pray to God, sanctify you. And they thought that somewhere down on the inside, God, the Holy Ghost would do a work and then it would deal with that sin nature. And then it wouldn't have power over you. And that's how they would pray over us as a teenager. So when I became an adult and I was in the Bible reading as a little teenage preacher, I came across that verse in first Corinthians chapter one, verse 30. that says Jesus has been made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification. Then I realized I don't have to pray to be sanctified. Jesus has made me holy when he brought me out of sin and into righteousness. And just like that, the scripture corrected my thinking. 
But do you realize how humble you have to be with God's word in order to acknowledge that something you formerly believed was error? And then to come to the truth of what God's word is, there's some people, as uh, my grandma used to say, when I would invite her out to come hear me preach and stuff like that, she said, boy, don't you know I was Baptist born and Baptist bred and one day I'm going to be Baptist dead. And that's what she was. She died a Baptist. She'd come out and hear her little grandchild preach. But I'm telling you, she died a Baptist. She said, I'm going this far and I don't want to go any further. Folks, I want to go wherever God wants to take me in the truth of his word. And wherever he opens up the door and pulls the veil back and helps me to see more things with greater clarity, I'm after it. And if God says it's profitable for me, I want it. So the final sentence here says, for instruction in righteousness, which is a very interesting statement because we wonder sometimes what righteousness is. You're righteous even if you don't think you're righteous, even if you don't feel like you're righteous. God has done a work in your life. You came out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And the moment God did that, he transformed your life. He grabbed that cold, stony, black heart, squeezed it, warmed it up, gave you a brand new life, imparted new desires. You were regenerated so that now as a Christian, you can walk as a born again believer. So you're totally different now. You're nothing like you were as a sinner if you're born again. But how many times have we heard People say things like this. Well, you know, we're just sinners saved by grace. I know what they mean. It's a humble statement. Sounds very modest. But let's explore that for a second. Go to first Timothy chapter one and listen to Paul, because this is where that saying comes from. Paul is saying In verse 9 and 10, that the law wasn't made for a righteous man, but for unrighteous people. And then he names all these ungodly actions and different types of people. But then he says in verse 11, according to the glorious gospel, which was committed to me in verse 12, he was enabled to be put into the ministry because he was counted faithful. Now listen to his testimony of his past in verse 13. I was a blasphemer, persecutor injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So people say, if Paul says he's a sinner, then we're all sinners. That's not what Paul was saying. Paul was saying he was a sinner. If you take the time to look at all the things that he did in the past, that there's nobody with more abundant sins than him. He stood by and watched people stoned to death. That's what he did. And he he raided house churches and put people in prison and had had papers from the priest to to take people and confiscate them and incarcerate them. Now, how do I know he wasn't saying he's just a sinner? Because when you read the epistles of Paul, you ever notice that when he writes to the Ephesians or to the Colossians or to the Galatians or to the Thessalonians, he doesn't say to the sinners saved by grace. He writes to the saints. See, our perspective very often is wrong. We think we're sounding humble. We think we're being quite modest when really 
We're doing it ignorantly in unbelief. To the saints which are in Ephesus. What is a saint? Somebody whose sins have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Not somebody who's perfect. There wasn't a perfect person in the church of Ephesus or in the church of Colossae. That's not what Paul is saying. And you don't have to wait for a committee of cardinals or anybody else to raise their hand and vote and determine whether or not it's a saint. You're a saint because you're in the kingdom of God. So when a person says, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, I'm thinking to myself, no, pick one. If you're a sinner, you're not saved. And if you're saved by grace, you're not a sinner. Because John says in 1 John very clearly, he that is born of God doesn't practice sin. So the Bible is good for instruction in righteousness if we want it. But if we don't want it, then we can just continue down the other path. Now, let me... Clear up one final thing over here in Second Peter chapter 1 where he's talking about the scriptures also. Second Peter 1 verse 19, we have a more sure word of prophecy. You do well to take heed like unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Notice that he's using symbols and metaphors that get brighter and brighter. He starts off with a, a lamp or candle. Imagine walking into a dark room and all you have is a flashlight. You'd have enough light to see where you're going, but outside of that little area of the the light, you're not going to have anything on the sides where there's so much more darkness. But from that small little candle, he then speaks of the day dawn, the rising of the sun. Look how bright the sun is when it bursts over the horizon and, and you are sitting there watching it on the morning and it's beautiful watching it on the porch or a patio. That's so much brighter than even a candle. But then he speaks of the day star rising in your hearts. If you think the sun is beautiful and it's brilliant, you ought to see what happens when Jesus Christ breaks forth and manifests illumination in the life of a Christian. Yeah, because when he turns the light on, everything changes. Our perspective changes. Our outlook changes. How we think about people and things change. And the scripture says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Once the word is inside of you, illumination becomes a daily occurrence. And when the word of God is taught and ministered to you, God opens your eyes. I've ministered to people that I knew didn't know anything about God. And I could tell in preaching the gospel to them as they heard the story, it was like sun, the sun rising in front of them. And for the first time, they were enjoying the warmth of the presence of Christ because of the word of God. He says, knowing first that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. Nobody sat down and made this up. Even if you or I could make up a way of redemption, we wouldn't make up anything as glorious as this. It's not a matter of private interpretation. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So God, the Holy Ghost, working inside of men and women in the Old Testament... And people at this time when the book was being put together were inspired by God and they spoke. And thankfully, God had people take the time to record the wording. 
Now, here's what you'll hear in a commentary or sometimes with some people, they'll say things like this. Well, you know, you can't really trust the the um, the recordings of Luke or Matthew because they may not have gotten all the wording right. Well, whatever they got written down is what God wanted. What God wanted is what's inspired. You may not like what they have put have put down, but it's still there. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So God, the Holy Ghost moves upon people's hearts and people were speaking the word of God. You said, Pastor, do you think people are moved by God to write scripture today? Absolutely not. I do not. I tell you what I do believe, though. I do believe God still moves upon people uh, to declare the mind of God, and speak God's word. You say, in what way? Well, think about it this way. The scripture says that Miriam was a prophetess. The only thing we ever know that she did was she took a tambourine and banged it and sang a song. But she must have prophesied somewhere, but it's not recorded. But obviously she still was a prophetess. The Bible tells us that Silas was a prophet. Yeah. Said he exhorted the people. But he never wrote a book of prophecy. They never recorded a prophecy. So I think God can use a lot of people to give an utterance, give a prophecy, and it still be of the Lord. But it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be written down. I see people all the time that when they get prophecies, they're running around with tape recorders. They're writing stuff down. They want to hold on to it. And I mean, they've compiled books of 40 years, 50 years of what they believe people have spoken to them. And I just I just stand back and watch. Because if you're not careful, you'll start thinking that stuff is equal to Malachi. And. and and, and when it when it doesn't come to pass, then you're going to be angry and upset at God. And the problem is not with God. I knew a lady one time somebody prophesied to her and told her she was going to get some miracle money. Oh, my goodness. Miracle money. She wasn't even good with what she had, but she thought she was going to get miracle money. She was holding on to that prophecy. I just kept thinking, oh, my goodness, Lord. Trouble, trouble. But I've seen it when it's functioned the right way. I've seen it when it's functioned appropriately. I told you about that time in my home church, Full Gospel Assembly in Cleveland, Ohio. I'd just come back from the Middle East. And in our church, we had about 130 people in that church. It was a former Jewish synagogue. All the seats had little numbers on them, just like synagogue seats typically do. And I was sitting in my spot, coming, having come back from, from uh, Jordan, studying Arabic. And we had a new lady up there playing that guitar. Leading praise and worship. I'd never seen her. She had never seen me. My pastor didn't even know I was going to be there that Sunday morning. And so here we were worshiping the Lord and praising God. And then we hit that part of the service where it got real quiet. And we were just standing there, just soaking in the presence of the Lord. And I was just loving on him. And then that lady up there who's playing that guitar, she stopped. She pointed over there in my direction. She said, you. And then, of course, I didn't know her. She didn't know me. The people in the church knew who she was and knew how she functioned and operated. So when she said you and pointed at me, they all parted like the Red Sea and did this here. And so I just joined right in and did that also. And she said, no, you the black guy, because there were only a handful of black folks there in the church. She said, come on down. I, I, I went on down there to the altar. Only time this has ever happened in my life, never has it happened since. She grabbed that guitar, she started playing that guitar and started singing in prophecy about my ministry. She didn't know me. She didn't know God had called me 
to the nations or anything like that. And then after she stopped singing, she started prophesying about how I wasn't even supposed to be in America at that time. I wasn't. I was supposed to be in South America. I stopped at home to visit my mom and dad. And she prophesied to me about the wife that God was going to give to me. Yeah. Standing right there at that altar, I thought, oh, my goodness. So I've seen it when it's worked the right way. But I've also seen the foolishness. And the foolishness is not what we want. The Bible says if God ministers his word and is true, he said people will fall down on their face and worship because they know God is in this place. I knew I had come in contact with God. Because she didn't know me from Adam. But here I was now. By the presence, of the Holy Spirit, she's reading my mail, not embarrassing me, but just letting me know what I'm supposed to be doing and what God and who God's bringing into my life. And I pray that this inspired book would keep us on the right foundation. If we follow this, folks, we won't be deceived by these folks that don't believe God's doing anything today. For them, God's locked up in this book, and other than just reading about him, he doesn't do anything he's not even worth talking about today. But for us that love God and have a passion for him, we have the expectation that the God of all the universe knows our address right here in Thayer County. Amen? Amen. Let's stand tonight. Keep your faith founded on the word. Don't allow anybody send you in the wrong direction, but trust God and know that God's plans and purposes for your life are for you to follow him. And always expect God to do something great for you. Don't slide out of that bed each day just thinking it's just going to be an ordinary day. You serve an extraordinary God. And even in those times where you're having difficulties, he can still stretch forth that mighty Mighty arm of his. Over and over, he's shown. He can put the puzzle together, put the pieces in the right place. If he has to, he'll remove pieces just to make sure he can put you where you need to be. And all we have to do is stand back and just watch. Don't have to say a thing. Just worship God as we walk through it. Heavenly Father, when we consider how gracious you are to each one of us, and we think about the miracles that you've wrought in our lives and in our path, We cannot help but say thank you. We think of the friendships, the relationships. We think of the people that you have brought into our circle of influence, the various relationships that have been established. And God, we are so grateful. Thank you, Lord, that here in this church and the other churches, you've helped us to form friendships with people we never even knew lived on this planet. And so many hundreds of people that have come through our churches that love you and want to hear the word of God. I pray, Lord, that you continue to favor us and continue to bless each one of us. We pray that South Central Nebraska and North Central Northwestern Kansas will never be the same because of the word of God that is proclaimed. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen, 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 amen. Pray.